What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have Michael Sullivan, a guy who studies uh, how the relationship between neuroscience and theos or theology are intertwined. It's a very interesting relationship. So I ask him some hard questions, some questions that maybe uh, people might be asking themselves. I know I've, I was curious about some things, and uh, that relationship are two are, are very interesting for me because I always like trying to learn within those contexts. Like we don't know anything about the brain, and a lot of people think that the brain doesn't really have any type of relationship with what we believe about belief, about feels, about theology, about God. So very interesting. Y'all check it out. Um, I learned some stuff and I hope you guys do. Thanks. All right, Mr. Sullivan. Uh, man, I really appreciate you hanging out with me, uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, I, I was told about you from my dad. He says, you know, you gotta check this guy out, Michael Sullivan. He's a neurotheol or his specialty is neurotheology. So tell me a little bit about what neurotheology is. Well, neurotheology is a mashup of neuroscience and theology. And it's kind of a new animal on the block because uh, neuroscience is informing people of faith very, very profoundly about the human design. And so as we're learning more about the human design, as theologians, of course, we go back and say, well, God made people, so... God made human brains. So how did he make them? And now that we understand that more profoundly, then you, you need to integrate that into your understanding of human development from a biblical perspective. So, so human maturity, because the Bible talks to us about the importance of maturing as human beings. And then it also talks to us about the importance of being transformed in our character to become like Christ. And so this is where neurotheology comes in because there are Christian people being influenced by neuroscience who say, how does it fit with my faith? How does it, and how does it fit with human life? Mm. So before we jump into it, cause I had about 10 questions there just from that one spiel before we jump into that, how did you get into this field and uh, tell me a little bit about your past? Sure. So um, when I was on campus in the 70s, I had become a believer in Christ, and I started to share my faith, and about 500 students on my campus became believers through my witness and then the witness of the people that I had uh, led to the Lord. It was kind of a spontaneous combustion of spiritual awakening that happened in the 70s, and so I found myself uh, as a Christian leader of a group of people that I hadn't really intended to be a leader to, it just happened. So that's what inducted me into uh, ministry. And then through the years, I just uh, have associated with church movements, became a pastor, became a teacher, became you know uh, a church leader uh, and uh, traveled the world for a number of years representing our church to other churches and church movements and um, got married you know along the way when I was young and had five kids so we raised a family of five and did ministry both my wife and I have been right in the middle of all of that drama through the decades and uh, it's been a very interesting uh, journey and like you I'm a lifetime learner so I'm learning all the way along Things that work, things that don't work, 
things that make sense, things that you got to throw out. So, yeah. So how did you get into neurotheology? So neurotheology intersected our lives when my wife went through a crisis, a health crisis. Uh, in 2005, she had a brain surgery to correct a neurological condition called uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Very, very painful, life-threatening. Had to have brain surgery to correct this, uh, to correct the problem, and a long recovery. And and as she was in her recovery, she had symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress mm. disorder, that she was diagnosed with. Well, she'd been um, interacting with some friends here in Kansas City that knew about neurotheology and knew about this particular group that pioneered a lot of it. And who is that group? So it's called Life Model Works. Uh, it was previously called Shepherd's House. So it rebranded some years ago and founded by uh, Dr. Jim Wilder and his wife, Kitty Wilder. And so we found out about them and their writings and Terry read one of their books and said, oh, I need to go get prayer from these people because maybe it will help with the PTSD problem. So she went out to uh, California to receive prayer uh, along a certain pattern of prayer and a certain method of prayer. And she had uh, a miraculous uh, recovery from the symptoms of PTSD uh, through this prayer uh, model called the Emmanuel Prayer Model. That got us involved. Plus, I was friends with a guy named Dr. Dallas Willard, who's a well-known Christian author who was a professor at USC, a philosophy professor, who was a very well-known Christian teacher and author. And he, he was involved with Life Model Works uh, from a distance, but put his thumbs up on the model. And so when he did that, and then we read the book, and then Terry got healed through this kind of prayer, we were like, okay, we need to pay attention to this neurotheology stuff. And that's how we got involved. So neurotheology in regards to healing and prayer, that's kind of a, what many people would say, a, uh, like an uh, oxymoron, you know? And I agree, I, I get what you're saying, sure. but I, there's a large population that you know, doesn't think that's even a thing. Like how can prayer actually heal the body through the concept of neurotheology? Yes. So, you know, our neuro, our neuro, uh, our, our central nervous system and our, uh, and neuro and neuroscience is very aware of the impact of presence of another person uh, upon us and upon a deep part uh, of our being when we are presenced by someone. So I turn presence as a noun into a verb, presencing, like you and I are presencing each other right now. And, and neuroscience shows us that this affects the brain, literally. It, it affects the neurochemistry of the brain. It affects the neurostructure of the brain. And so when you have a theology that includes God as a person who presences us, that, that's kind of the philosophical basis for prayer making an impact on our brains. Is there a difference between being in the same room as somebody versus somebody on a Zoom call as far as what you say the presencing is? You know, there actually is. Um, there's a certain degree of presencing that happens like this across a Zoom call. 
but it's not the same as when you are face to face with someone because there's some delay in what, what's going on in exact real time that's very, very powerful upon our being that uh, the, the video doesn't do. So it, it, can, it can happen, but it doesn't happen as quickly or as efficiently as when you actually are in the, the flesh face to face with someone. So there's some cool things about that. I've been looking up something called, um, uh, what's it called? Neuro, neurometeorology or neurobiology. Bio, bio yeah. Well, there's, it's, I'm going blank here on what it was. Cause I've been, I've just kind of taken in so much information lately, but it's how the world around us connects with our biology and how our biology connects with the world around us. Yeah. And you, you can get into some interesting, um, uh, far Eastern meditation, Eastern, uh, stuff, I guess we could say there, um, like you're one with, um, you're one with the earth, that type of stuff. But there's the science behind it is actually very interesting. And what connects us with people around us and those vibes that we get, um, it's all about vibrational patterns. And I wonder if what you're saying is is when you're with somebody in the same room, you're feeling those quote unquote vibes, right? Which is a vibe with somebody is sure. based on the vibrations that each person emits. Like there's something called, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the Schumann's resonance. resonance. Have you heard about yeah. that at all? It's, it's basically, I'm really like diving into this because literally last weekend we went to Corpus Christi and for some reason, like I, I've struggled with anxiety in the past, but that was like post COVID and I, I had dealt with it. I'm good. But on the way to, to the to Corpus Christi, um, I had this like crazy high anxiety almost the entire time, um, both Friday and Saturday. And that's not normal for me. Uh, I'm usually a pretty down to earth guy. And I'll have like occasional anxiety, but it's not near as bad. And it, had, it made no sense. I, I kind of shut down. And it was a trip for my, you know, my son's birthday. It was a beach trip. So it was supposed to be awesome, but I had to shut down. And I didn't know why. And I started looking into it. And there's something called Schumann's Resonance. And it's literally Earth's heartbeat. The earth has a vibration at a, uh, they measure it about 7.8 Hertz and it's actually increased over the past 40 years. And whenever it spikes, when Schumann's resonance, the vibrations of the earth spikes, it can affect uh, human biology. It can affect those around us. And they found that electrical storms can also spike Schumann's resonance, the earth's heartbeat. And apparently last weekend it spiked to, I think like triple what it normally is like thirties or twenties, something like that. Hmm. And isn't that interesting? So I, I all, all that to say, um, you're talking about the presencing, the how prayer affects brain waves and how the, it, that, that feeling, those vibes that we get. I want, I'm curious how that plays into vibrations around us and if prayer really kind of helps us um, calm down a little bit, you know? Yep. Well, I think of a few things. For, you know, first of all, the Eastern world has has understood a, bi a body mind you know spirit uh heart connection that the west is kind of in in the ripple effects of the enlightenment and the mm -hmm. exaltation of human rationality and will uh you know we've kind of marginalized that idea mm -hmm. but really the bible is an eastern book <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's kind of an irony middle eastern and Middle Eastern people. And so, you know, the, the heart, mind, body connection is there in the Bible um, as a worldview. And so, 
if we learn these things, you know, if it proves out that the earth has a resonance, like you're saying, then as a Christian or a Bible believing person, you would say, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we, the Bible says in Psalm 139, which is a great Psalm for neurotheology, is that we were fashioned by God personally in our mother's wombs, that he knit us together in that very special space. And he has mapped out our lives and he has been with us nearby us uh, since the, the very beginning of our lives. And so to find out, because it says in that passage, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's true of the human being. It's true of the natural world. You know, it's God's world. He's the one who created it. So if we discover these wonderful mysteries about, you know, the natural world, it, it doesn't surprise a, a Christian who's soaked in biblical uh, ideas. Well, it's weird how there's a, a subset of, in fact, I know a lot of Christians who, who anytime they hear something about meditation or vibrations or being what many people would say one with the earth, which I get, we're not going to get into like pantheism or anything like that. Sure. Um, but it's, they are always turned off by that. They don't, it's almost like because they don't understand it, they feel like it's not a, uh, a fingerprint of a higher being. And yeah. they're, they're almost scared of it. So I wonder if that has to do more with religion, like this, the, the intensity of how religion can be, specifically within the Christian communities, on how that can affect their worldview about these new and cool ideas, you know? Sure. Yeah, well, like I said, the Eastern people have understood this connection and they've theorized and philosophized and religionized it all. You know, they have their religions, right, uh, that, are, that are based in their cultures from the east, very different than European Christ Christianity. Um, and I think that, you know, Western Christianity has been soaked in uh, a lot of in uh, a lot of enlightenment ideas. And so uh, this, this is very much about living it in our heads, you know, living as though information and intellect is the most important thing about us. But the Bible doesn't teach us that, <laughs> that mm. we should not exalt human reason to the way that Western culture has. And so this kind of shuts Western people off a lot of times from, you know, some of these more mysterious ideas about creation. I think we should be open to them. And, you know, all truth and the Christian philosophers have said this a long time, all truth is God's truth. So when you find truth, you know, if you're seeking truth and you find truth, it's God's truth. If it really is true. <laughs> so That's interesting. So I, I have that kind of brought up an interesting question for me. Um, I, like I told you before we started, I, you know, I love researching. I love how I can understand these different ideas and from different perspectives. Um, one of these topics that came up that many Christians hate talking about is um, like LSD or shrooms or these drugs like that, marijuana. Um, what I'm finding is that, and I've, I've had quite a few researchers come on the show as well and tell me about some like the benefits and health benefits of shrooms. So, so psilocybin and, and how if you are in a controlled setting, um, it'll actually open up your mind in ways and, and specifically attacking PTSD and depression and how when you take 
small doses, or even if you get high completely, it really, really, really helps your body overcome specifically PTSD. So if the evidence is showing that, you know, the effective rate for psilocybin is like 2.0 to 3.0 versus SSRIs, like the the typical mental health medicines that we have today, those effective rates are, I think, 0.3. So if mental health drugs are at an effective rate of 0.3, but psilocybin and shrooms and those type of drugs are, I mean, at 2.0 to 3.0, that's insane for an effective rate. So why is that bad? Why do people think that's terrible? I've never done it, but uh, the research is backing that it's very, very, very good to help us get past things. So from a neurotheology perspective, how do you overcome these ideals? Sure. Well, um, I, that's a great question. I haven't thought much about it. Um, the Bible does warn us about, you know, like drunkenness mm-hmm. is, is something the Bible warns us about. It puts us into a different state of consciousness. We know that, right? And it, it feels good for some people to be drunk, but it lowers your, uh, it doesn't help your character and it doesn't lead to, you know, better behavior. So, uh, so the scripture warns us about using a natural substance like alcohol to alter our state of consciousness and say, that's not good. You know, there's a better high, there's an original high. And the original high is to connect with God in a personal way. And he's available to be that. And so when the New Testament contrasts drunkenness, it contrasts it with being filled with God's spirit. So be filled, and it's, it's, it's a wordplay too, be filled with spirits, a spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the original, it's the original high. So if it's being done for recreational purposes, I think that it can be dangerous and it can, you know, altered states of consciousness aren't something that we are supposed to, uh, you know, crave after, I guess. It's better to be just who you are in your natural state and, and be connected to God. So I'd be skeptical, I think, about um, powerful substances altering our states of consciousness but medicine, you know, is a, a very real uh, help to people. And so if it's used medicinally under supervision, you know, not to um, lose control of our character. And, you know, I think that there's room for, there's room for medical solutions, you know. Oh yeah, and I'm. I struggle. I've, everybody has always brought up the alcohol versus marijuana or alcohol versus you know LSD debate. Um, but when you apply like a cost benefit analysis to pros and cons of the human body, alcohol is far worse for your body. It kills your liver. You can get so many so many diseases. But sure. we're not finding that with marijuana or LSD or things like that. Specifically, for, like you're saying, in a medicinal way. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's interesting the scripture that I think is Paul. He says uh, everything is. Uh, permissible but not beneficial but what we're finding is that research shows these type of hallucinogenic drugs for the concepts of ptsd is actually equivalent to years of talk therapy um so if you're going to a therapist for years and you are able finally able to overcome something that's deeply rooted in, in trauma within your brain that is the equivalent for somebody doing a controlled high in his control setting 
um, two hours of being two or three hours of being high is equivalent to years of talk therapy. So I struggle. I'm kind of these are things I'm just I'm I'm thinking about and researching a whole lot of. You know that is sure. beneficial. Those type of things are very beneficial to the brain. Um, like, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like you don't want to get like pretty much lose consciousness and go out in public and <laughs> get crazy because even there's there's uh, landmines out there, so to speak, for sure. those type of behaviors. So I've seen, I've seen some research that shows that marijuana is not good for the brain, though. I'd have to know more, you know, before I make too many comments about about that. Yeah, there's just a silver bullet. Like there's there's no brain. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm gonna cut you off. Um, there is a subset of the population that is very good for the for the body and the brain, and help specifically people who are struggling with anxiety and depression. Um, versus, I, I what I'm I bring this up because so many Christians are you taking like SSRIs, the mental health drugs I talked about, which are terrible for the brain. The side effects far out outnumber the bad side effects from marijuana, like tenfold. Now they have actually drugs from Big Pharma that. Um, you take to counteract the side effects from SSRIs. So when you look at, again, cost-benefit analysis, why do some people think that SSRIs and the medicinal drugs, because it's approved by the FDA, are be good, but marijuana, psilocybin, those things are bad? Yeah. Yeah, it's not my field, so I, I'm not, I, I haven't done a lot of research into drugs and mental health um, myself. I'm not a physician, but I am a theologian and, and I have seen, you know, the power of God's presence and prayers making a difference in people's uh, levels of anxiety, depression, and like my wife being healed of the symptoms of PTSD through prayer. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of our focus. And I would say I'd be open to having conversations like we're having now with anybody about the possible use of drugs uh, for mental health, but I think that it's just got to be monitored really carefully. And you're right. It's not a silver bullet. I'm not trying to advocate that this is the one-stop shop, but I bring this up because I'm curious how, like there are so many people that I've heard um, tell me their personal stories about, okay, you know, this pastor just told me to pray and this pastor just told me to, I'm not one with the spirit. Um, to overcome my PTSD, my anxiety, my depression, and it doesn't work. It's years of that. Or, you know, why do healings occur for some people and not others? Like, why do, why is it so um, disproportionate? It's like prayer isn't also, like, I, I agree that prayer is super good. Like talking to, talking to God is good. That's very good. Very good for your body. Very good for even your brainwaves when you take it from a neuroscience perspective. Um, but not everybody is like your wife, you know? And it wasn't talk therapy that uh, that did it for her. I mean, the, it was, I would say you're really right about the talk therapy. There's too much that has been, too much weight has been put upon talking people through problems. And even in the Christian prayer world, you know, that, that there's been too much talking. Um, I think this is more about presencing than it is about talking. And that's a form of prayer that a lot of Christians haven't learned about. So tell me about that then. Well, it, it, you know, it's about God's actual real presence coming close to us. Um, the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent on one hand. He's everywhere. Uh, but the Bible also teaches that God manifests his presence. And so this would be more in that bucket of understanding of God actually manifesting his presence uh, in 
when we interact with him in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this is very much tied to the neurotheology that we can learn to become more attuned to God's presence through offering him our brains in a way that we don't necessarily do it. There's a process. One of the, one of the real simple uh, practices of neurotheology is something that the culture is picking up on in a big way, and you'd be interested in this research, is gratitude. Literal expression of gratitude for good things that are all around us and noticing those things. And the impact of gratitude on the human heart and the human brain is there's a lot of there's a lot of uh reading and research being done on you know on that front right now. Do you well, know exactly not, what research is is showing? Oh, if you just Google gratitude, you'll find it everywhere. I mean, it's institutions like Harvard are picking up on the importance of gratitude. Well, how does gratitude, you know, help mental health and help the brain? Well, there's research being done on that. So that would be a good example of neurotheology that's becoming mainstream in our culture is this whole thing of a, a gratitude movement. Hmm. Do you, from what you've uh, research yourself, what was the thing that stood out the most on how gratitude affects biology? Well, it calms the central nervous system. And gratitude, I would say, it, it causes joy levels to go up. So joy is, is a, there's chemistry for joy in the brain. Mm-hmm. And it causes joy levels to go up. And when joy levels go up, it causes people's defenses to come down, opens their hearts, makes them more vulnerable to God, makes them more vulnerable to God's people. And so when that happens, then there's a way for a love connection to take place that, that actually influences a very deep part of our brain, the attachment center. So this is a lot of the neurotheology is rooted in attachment theory. And there's an actual attachment center in the human brain, hmm. which is very close to the brainstem. And that, that attachment center is crying out. If it, had, if it could talk, it would, it would cry out, is there someone out there who's bigger than me, more mature than me, who will not only care for me, but in, who, and in whose eyes I will be delightful? That down deep inside of us, the way God made us is we long to be the sparkle in someone's eye, literally. And the Bible teaches that God loves us like that. And God's people are called to love other people like that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people uh, mistake love for judgment. And I think people, a lot of people want to run with, hey, you're doing something wrong. And that's really like, that's not, that's not the purpose of all this. It's, it's like, how do we just like, what you're saying, love somebody, bring that attachment feeling and pointing to what's actually true. It's almost like the theory of general, is it general revelation in Romans one that they talk about? Um, it's, there's something out there that everybody kind of can see based on the creation that we have. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if that has to do with some of that attachment that we're finding And and are, from what you've seen, do people who sh- like, how do people react whenever they shut down that attachment center that you're talking about? 
Well, the attachment center is, it's tricky. It, it, uh, it will attach. <laughs> Your attachment center is the most powerful, it's the most powerful force in the human brain is the longing, the yearning to attach. So we do attach to our caregivers, for instance, mm -hmm. but it may be a toxic experience to attach because they don't care very well. They may neglect their little children, right? Things like that. So the attachment center is still attached, but it, it's not necessarily attached in a healthy way, but it will attach. And you see this in human relationships, people attach to unhealthy people who harm them and they stay attached to them. You know, it's just a powerful thing. So that's a, that's a tragedy when that happens. But the way we're designed is we're designed to be loved by our caregivers. We're designed to be attached in a loving relationship, a healthy relationship where the more mature person uh, humbles themselves to meet the little one on their own turf and relate to them at their level and let them know how much they're delighted in. So that's a healthy experience for the attachment center. If the attachment center is not healthy, it will act out. And it, and a lot of people, they don't know that they have an attachment center and they've had bad experiences with human beings. And so they pretty much deny that they need attachments to human beings, but they attach to things. So you can attach to stuff instead of people. And this uh, brings temporary joy. It's, it's like a counterfeit joy. It's like a, it's like a, a pseudo joy that people get from being attached to all kinds of things, right? You're attached to entertainment or attached to money. You're attached to, you know, pornography. You're attached to this or that or a drug. And that's the attachment center functioning because it will latch on. Do you so think that uh, some people attach to church? Attached in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, do you think that some people attach to church and not Jesus? Sure. Why? Yeah, people attach to organizations. You can you can attach to you know all kinds of things, but we're we're designed to attach to persons, right? And we're especially designed to attach to persons who love us, and that we can learn to love back. And the the goal of overcoming uh, unhealthy and toxic attachments is actually to form new ones with people and persons that are that are mature and healthy and loving rather than toxic hmm. so i, I want to get back to what you were saying earlier about how y'all kind of developed a technique with this presencing thing yeah um how does that work how, how do you practically presence so to speak all right so uh there's a couple of things one would be this gratitude thing so you know gratitude is I'm thirsty and oh my gosh, there's something called water, you know? Mm. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing experience, right? The quenching of thirst. So gratitude can be something as simple as that. Or uh, if you're a coffee uh, drinker, a coffee in the morning, you know? Um, it can be a gratitude. So anything you can be grateful for works. Um, but to go a deep, a step deeper, I would say another thing that we help people do is get in touch with what I call golden memories. 
So golden memories would be a time, a moment, like a snapshot, you know, in your life, a memory where you've, you might have felt a number of different things or could have felt a number of different things. So just go with me here. Uh, a golden memory is a time when I felt like, oh, now I know why I'm on the planet kind of a feeling. I have a purpose. Or it might have been beauty that, you know, people experience it in nature a lot. Like you see the majesty of mountains or oceans or, you know, any any beauty, anything of nature that's beautiful. This is the Romans one thing you were talking about. That we can we can actually connect with God through the things that God has made. And we don't worship the thing, but we worship the one who made it. But we do enjoy the thing that he made. And and it and it touches us, it, it it affects us. So a golden memory can happen through beauty affecting the heart in your history. Or it might be just this uh, transcendent sense of peace that you that overcame you, you know, that, that came upon you, or a sense of well-being. It might have been uh, an experience with another person, usually around feeling loved. I really feel loved by this person or even a pet. People have golden memories around interacting with their pets. So um, yeah, these are, these are golden memories and we tend to rush through life so fast. We have these experiences, but we don't capture them. And so what we do is we help people return to a golden moment in their life. And then they interact with God around that moment. And so, you know, for me, it was holding my, my newborn son, my oldest son. He's 42 almost now. But I remember holding him in my hands for the first time. And I had, a, I had an experience with him and I had an experience with God that I didn't realize was a God experience until I looked back. But I, I remember the moment. And I've interacted with God around that moment many times. And he has, he has spoken to my heart through that experience of fatherhood for the first time in my life. And just the feelings that were associated with that. It wasn't just a human experience. It was a divine experience for me. And there's a message that God communicates to our hearts through these experiences in life, these golden experiences in life. And it's usually a message about our identity because that's what he really wants us to know, who we really are, especially who we really are when we are connecting to him and when we're connected to him. Hmm. So gratitude and then tapping into the golden memories, those are kind of the main two things of that. It's a mind hack, so to speak, on yeah. kind of tapping into what Jesus or God has. Yes, and it goes to a part of your brain that is that is uh, faster. It operates faster than conscious thought. It operates faster than words. Faster than you know the the left hemisphere of the brain can't keep keep up with it. It's just the right hemisphere of the brain is the fast track, and down deep inside, these things impress us. They they it, you see a picture, something happens, you sense somebody's presence it's faster than thought so there's ways to access that part of our being through these 
encounters, these presencing encounters with God and with other people. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people uh, are so, like we're talking about before, uh, specifically Christians, because um, unfortunately, some Christians are, are some of the most closed-minded people there are, um, unfortunately, which really stinks. But Because um, we've, we've crammed our heads full of information, and it's all about right information. If you got all the right information, then you're going to be okay. Uh, and so Christians are very dedicated to getting all the right information into people's heads. Why, and, why is that? That's uh, a good, I like it, that perspective. That's good. It's because we think information is going to transform us, and it doesn't. You know, information is important, but it comes down the list of things that move us and motivate us. And and Christ, the Christian church has been pretty in the West, not the East so much, but in the West, the Christian church has been so dedicated to getting all the right beliefs, all the right information. But we're changed by who loves us and who we love more than by information. You know, you, you brought up the East versus the West quite a few times. And I like that because, you know, the West is very privileged. You know, America is very privileged with Christianity. And it, it seems like it gets so clouded um, with all these rules, all this information on like them trying to be so good for the higher for God. Right. Um, they have to follow these steps to be able to be good for God. And, and it's funny in the, in the East, like in China, you have insane persecution. You have insane uh, things happening to the Christian church, but it's only spreading like but I wonder if that's because their lifestyle in the, in the East is one that's very simple. Yeah. I love Jesus. He loves me. Um, that's all I have to, that's all I can hope on right now to get me past this. And it's like, that's the one hope that gets me past the thought of death, you know? Yeah. Well, I think you're onto something, you know, China is a great example for us because back in the cultural revolution, you know, Mao and the communist movement there, they, they were trying to stamp out all religion. And so they they threw out the Bibles, literally, and they threw the Christian church leaders in China into prison. And so trying to stamp out the Christian faith. But the amazing thing was, is that there were these, especially women, especially older women, who had memorized parts of the Bible, even though they didn't have their physical Bibles, or if they did, they were illegal, but they knew their Bibles by heart, and they started to gather people into their homes and share the good news of Jesus with people. And a revival broke out in China in the 70s and 80s that was primarily uh, fueled by these older women who were telling stories of God and of Christ. And the, the fact that religion was illegal and stamped out created the vacuum for people to say we want this mm -hmm. and so the church started multiplying in china and and it's the large it's the the country with the most number of christians in it in the world now yeah there's a book i read in high school uh called safely home i think it's by randy alcon or Al i think it's alcon is what it was and they uh they gave the scenario the situation that Christianity when it's, it's almost like it's a glass like we have a full glass mason jar um, but you can drink the water out of a mason jar but it's really just it's only going to stay in one spot if you put it on the table but as soon as it breaks and you try the more you step on it the more it breaks the further it spreads and that seems like what's happening in China in a lot of uh, persecuted countries like that and honestly like I'm a little uh, I'm a little intense on some things uh, not gonna lie and I kind of wish some of that would come to America I kind of wish some of that would be like um just to get us back to the simplicity of what God and Jesus did. 
because like you're saying, everybody's jumping on this information. They're making it so complicated. They say, if you do this, you're going to go to hell. It's like, man, like, let's just get to this. Let's first get to the very simplistic side of what actually occurred in Jesus's time. What actually did he do? And then once we understand that, maybe we can actually move forward, you know? Yeah. There's a great uh, group of people up in Oregon producing videos, five and six minute videos called the Bible Project. Oh, yeah. I know all about it. You know about it. I, I think they're doing this for us. You know, they're helping people get back to the beautiful, simple, great news about God loving the world through Jesus. And it doesn't have to. These are smart people. They they have a lot of complicated theology in their minds, but they make it really simple in their videos. So, from your perspective in neurotheology, neuroscience, uh, even on your own personal experiences, you know we're seeing a huge drop off in my generation in the church. Me being one of them, like I'm just frustrated with pretty much 99 percent of all the churches that are around me. Um, it just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't see, feel like um, that's what Jesus would actually want because it is very like okay you. <laughs> You do this, you do this, do this, you go home. Um, and I wonder if that has to do with just the modernization of um, the American Christian church. But yeah. We are seeing this huge drop of all my friends, same thing. Like we, we're Christians. We grew up Christians. We grew up knowing the truth, um, but we're just kind of sick of it, you know? Um, so why do you think that is for specifically within our generation? I think it's because the church has lost its relational vibe. It's lost its family vibe. If the church world has become more and church movements and churches are like factories rather than families. And, and so we do things that are dehumanizing to people. And the church in the West needs to be rehumanized by becoming relationally intelligent. We've lost our relational intelligence. And we've had such a premium on information and dispensing information that in the process, we've been inadvertently dehumanizing people, making them feel like uh, a, you know, speck of dust in the universe rather than someone created in the likeness and image of God. So we've got to do things differently that bring the relational warmth back into Christian communities we have to change a lot of things that we do in order to do that. It almost is to the point where if you say or talk about like, I'm a Christian or you're a Christian, like sometimes depending on who I'm talking to, I can't tell people that I'm a Christian. I have to say, I have to reword it. It's almost like semantics. Like I have to say, yeah, I believe believe there's a higher power. And for me, the only thing that works is Jesus. So I almost have to preface things like that because Christianity as a whole is just a joke to me, honestly, Uh, unfortunately. Um, but it's semantics. Yeah, there's notable exceptions to that, but I think, you know, generally it's a fair criticism. You're absolutely right. There are notable, notable exceptions. I don't, I don't want to paint this with a broad brush, um, but these are main issues, and I, everybody I talk to is feeling it, you know? Yeah, me too. Do you too? Okay. Yeah, That's me good. too. Yeah, ch- the church, we, like I said, we've got to get relationally warm again. But people have been hurt by people and their and their walls are up, their defenses are up. And so we've got to overcome the relational wounds that we've experienced in order to see the beauty of genuine relationships. And the church needs to lead the way. I think there's a need in the Western world for a relational renaissance. 
and um, and the neurotheology is very very fundamental to that happening in my mind. In Can you mind. and me too? Because neuroscience, the brain, how everything works, it seems like it only is pointing towards the fingerprint of a higher higher power, a higher creator. I can't get past how, like, like I've, I've talked about a lot how objective morality, if, if you can figure out objective versus subjective morality and how it works in your mindset with logic and reason, um, it all points towards something that is greater than everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that science is what points me and, and encourages me towards uh, a greater being. Um, I'll, I think, I feel like a lot of people are, they believe in that there is something there, that there is a higher power, but that's kind of where it stops. Yeah. How do we connect the higher being power through science and theology and neurotheology to what we know about Jesus? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, I think, I think that uh, a little bit of time meditating on the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus can help a lot because when you read about him, you know, there's just something special that happens if your heart's open. He like stands out as this amazing human being. And that's what God wanted. He wanted to send, he wanted to come in human form to show us what human life is about. And so uh, the person of Jesus is like even Einstein said this. He's like this luminous human being that you just can't ignore and if you if you uh see who he really is through those narratives then you fall in love with this person well i'm i definitely agree but so the the counter argument to that is so does muhammad you know muhammad was a very good person muhammad was a prophet to allah right so was gandhi i mean you have all these good people so i agree that like for me, Jesus is just attractive. Like I can't get past it being just attractive. Um, but a lot of people feel the same way about Muhammad and Gandhi, you know? Yeah. What do you say to that? I say Jesus outshines them. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Another, you start you're talking about reading about Jesus through scripture. A lot of people don't even believe that scripture is the authoritative word of, of God based cool. on whatever they believe about the Old Testament and how, Sure. You know, too many uh, uh, translations for it to actually be true. Sure. Um, how do you get past that as somebody who might be on the edge? Yeah, uh, it's a great conversation. You know, uh, I think that one of the problems is that fundamentalism has created a kind of what's called a wooden literalism about the Bible. So that it's teaching, for instance, they, they force it to teach us scientific facts about the world that we know are not facts. <laughs> and so we've been so dogmatic about our interpretation of you know, what, the, what we think the Bible is teaching us that this puts people off. But there's another way of reading it. You know? It was not written to us. It was, written, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to people back in you know, that day of, and so you've got to read it through a cultural lens. And there's a lot of great theology, theologians who've understood that and have written about this to help us reimagine our understanding of the Bible. Wasn't, it's not a science book, you know, and Mm. we forced it to into this pigeonhole to make it say, it's got to be scientifically true, you know, 
if it said it this way, mm. and it's not the case. So there's a way of understanding the Bible. And the Bible Project guys, by the way, have a really great series of videos on this, of understanding the language of the Bible, understanding the genres of the literature, and not forcing them to be what they aren't. Mm. And that's, that's caused a lot of people just in, in our modern world to stumble. You know, even the way that we write history is different than the way the ancient people wrote history. They didn't have the same, uh, you know, kind of uh, technical demand of writing history the way that we do. Mm. If you're going to write history, you got to write it this way. You know, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't follow those rules. Interesting. You know, uh, another thing that, so let me back up a little bit. You know, I bring up a lot of hard questions. I'm bringing right. up. Um, things that are always coming up with my friend groups within society that, that uh, why they're not going to church, why they're not a Christian, or why they don't believe there's a higher power. It doesn't really matter. I'm just like, these are questions I think it's, are not being discussed both in the church and outside the church. Yeah. And I feel like the ignorance, okay, let me, not ignorance, um, the lack of wanting to produce conflict with many organizations within the church are what has led to these gaps that aren't being talked about. And so you being uh, specializing in neurotheology, I think it's good to show the practicality, the neuroscience behind a lot of what we're dealing with. Um, and one of those is even death, you know, uh, from a neurotheologian theologian perspective, how do we deal with death in the mind and the brain coupled with Christianity? Wow, what a question. I'm not sure too much how it, how it um, relates to our brains, um, except that fear is a big deal for the brain. A lot of people, their fuel that, that their brain is running on is fear fuel. And I think true Christianity helps us get that fuel out and get the joy fuel you know, in. And it's a much better fuel. It's what we were designed to run on. So the Bible does talk in Hebrews chapter two about the fear of death, how it has bullied human beings, you know, from the beginning. But Jesus came to, it says, he came to destroy the one who, who had the power of death. That is the devil who kept people in the fear of death all their lives. So I think that there's a, a personal evil behind this fear of death and the fear of death has led people into all kinds of gyrations, you know, to try to survive. And it, it really does move people through life significantly is the fear of death and true Christianity delivers us from that fear. So, mm. you know, that's the first thought I have about death and the brain is about the fear of death. Well, you it's mentioned the uh, attachment uh, center of your brain. I wonder if some of that attachment that we're finding is being too much attached to what we have here and not really knowing or anything about what comes after. Yeah, I think that I think that's a part of it. And and also the fear, people have fear attachments, you know, they they attach in fear to even God. You know, people have a fear bond with God rather than a love bond. So that's that's not a good thing. So the attachment center can get hijacked by fear and and the neurotheology is a way of helping to displace that fear get that fear out so that joy and peace and love 
is is the new fuel that you run that you run on and that your attachment center runs on. Okay, so you mentioned those kind of three things on how the attachment center runs on that, how it dispels fear of death and all that stuff, but how practically, how do you do that? Um, and how does it connect with everything that we've talked about? Yeah, well, when God, when God presences us and when God's representatives, human representatives, presence us with love, then that's what mitigates the fear. And we need a lot of that to displace the fear. It's stubborn. You know, it, it comes natural to us to be afraid. We need these, the presencing of these mature persons, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and his representatives who, who really do uh, embody his presence. We need a lot of that to soak into our being uh, and into our attachment center by being presenced by these people, these persons. And that's what, that's what, uh, you know, unhooks us from the fear. Hmm. Well, the, the things that you brought up about gratitude and the attachment golden. side, what's that? And golden memories. And golden memories. Um, uh-huh. Those are all, like, if you've removed religion, if you removed um, the idea of God and that factor, they're all things that, we, that are already taught within the psychology departments, you know, within yeah. the psychology research. It seems like all these things that, that psycho- for the most part, um, all those things that psychology and psychotherapy neuroscience are teaching are the very things that will actually help us understand more about the creator. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah, there's a lot of breakthroughs in psychology, you know, that are happening um, that ties in with the, the neuroscience. Neuroscience is informing human psychology like never before. We're learning so much about the brain. It's wonderful. We're the first generation that knows why there's this big dividing line down your brain, you know, why there's a left and right hemisphere. The ancient people never knew this. They didn't know the brain science, um, but we do now. And so it's really helping, you know, um, and I think it leads, it leads us to God. Like you're saying that good science, I mean, if God really created everything, he's an awesome scientist, right? It, it's all going to point back to him. Uh, if you don't have that bias that you don't want him in the equation, then you figure out how to have life without him but um if he's really there he's a great scientist and he's an amazing artist and uh the combination of both and uh you know you fall in love you fall in love with this person and his son because he came in person you know a lot of people say well if god cared so much about the world why doesn't he just show up in person and the answer is he did thousand <laughs> years ago you know? like uh, what do you want <laughs> What, is it, what time do you have to dip out of here? About 15 more minutes or do you have to go Good. about 15 minutes? Okay. This is kind of a, taking a different, completely different approach, but I'm just kind of curious because it's popped up. Um, aliens. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you think there are aliens and does that fit in the biblical worldview? Well, the Bible doesn't talk about aliens um, at all. Um, so the ancient people weren't aware of any um, extraterrestrial life existing. Um so you can't go to the Bible to answer that question. Um, you know, if, if there is extraterrestrial intelligent life, then I wouldn't be surprised, you know. I wouldn't, like, lose my faith in God. <laughs> I mean, there's human beings all over the planet and amazing things that God has made. It's like, that's 
that's proof enough for me, you know, so it would just be further proof, you know. I just, I see a lot of people with, cause today or yesterday was June 1st and uh, that was supposed to be the release of the documents that all we have about UFOs and aliens and all this stuff. Yeah. And uh, it seems like a lot of people are like, well, look at you Christians now type of thing. Like I, I, I do, do know some people have said that if there were aliens, like it doesn't really fit into the biblical worldview. And that worldview, again, I think it's information. Like if the Bible doesn't talk about it, then it's not real. And if the Bible, if it's not in the Bible, then it's not a possibility. Yeah. But like it definitely, I, for my opinion, it, like, we do know that there's crafts out there. There are UFOs out there. And if yeah. those point to aliens, then it, it, it's not that big of a deal. Okay. If there's a, if there's a God, then he's definitely uh, has the capability to maybe make another earth or make another world universe. I mean, the world universe is just so big. We don't know Jack about it, you know? I know. It, to me, I, I think we're going to have a, you know, in the age to come, I think we're going to have a lot of surprises and, what God is up to in the universe or the multiverse, whatever he call whatever he calls it. But you know, one thing we do know is that Jesus is the Lord of all of that. Because everything that's been made was made by him. So Jesus is Lord of the aliens if there are any. Um and um so I wouldn't lose my faith if if we found that there were uh intelligent beings beyond the earth. But the other the other uh thing about the biblical worldview that is in the Bible is that there are spiritual beings that do manifest physically at times. And uh, so there are angels, there are divine beings, there are fallen angels and their realm as well. And people all through the centuries have had many encounters with the spiritual beings, uh, both uh, angelic and holy angels, as well as unholy spirits. And so I think that it's very possible that some of the phenomena of what we think is potentially uh, extraterrestrial beings is uh, from the is from the uh, dark spirits, you know. And um, there's a a Bible scholar named Dr. Michael Heiser, H E I S E R, that's really done a lot of work in this arena. And he's like been a speaker at UFO conventions and things like that. He's a theologian. He's a Bible believer. Really interesting guy. Hmm. So I would recommend, you know, I've recommended the Bible Project. I'd recommend Michael Heiser, Heiser. and his YouTubes to people because he's thought about a lot of this stuff. Huh. I'll have to check that out now. Maybe I can get him on the show. That'd be, that'd be interesting. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That would be awesome if you could have him. Huh. All right. I'll have to look at that up. So... Aside from presencing, you know, gratitude and all things, we've already talked about the brain and theology. Um, what else have really, what else has really stood out to you within this concept? Yeah, so it's, you know, we start with the gratitude, the golden memories. We start with the attachment center, getting the attachment center uh, down deep inside the right hemisphere of the brain, ministered to, regulated, calmed, uh, loved on, right? So the the things that come out of that are the things that I've been struck by, the things that grow out of that experience. And so one of them would be coming into a, what we call in neurotheology is a mutual mind state. So you've probably had this happen with other people where you're with them, you're with another person, you're, you're catching each other's thoughts by reading each other's faces. You feel like they get you, you get them. You start tracking with each other. 
and you're in sync with each other. So it's synchronization with another person. Which is the vibrations that I was telling you about earlier, how we give off vibrations. Even the brain gives off vibrations depending on what state of mood you're in, which makes yeah, us have vibes. It's, it's, some of it's physical too. It's eye contact and what, what you see in another person's eye. It's what you see on their face that you can't really put into words. It happens faster than words. And so you're synchronizing with another person. Well, what we've discovered is that God designed us to synchronize with him. And so that when, when we have this experience of presencing, we actually come into a mutual mind state with God. And we're not just thinking about God, but we're thinking with God. And mm -hmm. God is thinking with us. And his thoughts are merging with our thoughts. And sometimes you don't even know the difference until you look back and realize what you were thinking and you know how hmm. amazing it was well that's really interesting that you say that because that goes in, along with the theory of, of schumann's resonance you know schumann's resonance is like i said roughly 7.8 hertz and that's the vibration that we feel outside like that peacefulness that you get when you're outside is because of that resonance yep. well that same hertz is the exact same hertz that your brain waves give off when you're at your most peaceful state okay so uh, th those communications like kind of feeling the vibrations of God's creation, yep. his fingerprint sinks us in the same hurts with our most peaceful and loving state. Yeah. Hmm. And in the, in the normal Christian life, it, according to scripture, in my mind is, you know, we're supposed to eat from the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not supposed to figure out everything on our own. We're supposed to commune with God and he'll tell us what to do, you know, uh, and, and he'll think our thoughts with us. He'll invade our mm head. -hmm. And but there are practical that. ways to do that. Yeah, you know, so there are so many spacey things that people say, pastors say, uh, teachers say that just don't make sense. Like, how do we practically commune with God? Okay, maybe sync up with the same vibrational patterns of a fingerprint. You know, yeah. like when I'm outside and I am playing guitar and I'm having all these like really cool uh, feelings. It's like when I'm really feeling Him speak. It's I, I can't do it if there's chaos. You know, if there if I'm in the downtown middle of the street and there's sirens going off and there's police sirens. Like that's just not, it doesn't work for me. I have to be in a peaceful state. So practically that would make sense. Yeah. And, and calming is one of the practices of neurotheology. Mm. It's the first one is to learn to self calm. So you, you calm your amygdalas down They're They're down deep inside the right hemisphere of the brain as well. And then, and so you learn to calm yourself and you get into this peaceful state and, and, if God is really there, you know, according to scripture, he talks to people. And so we can hear God speak to us. He whispers into our hearts. He whispers into our minds. He whispers into our thoughts. And so this is a very common experience for, for Christians. And mm. it's a wonderful thing. And he'll tell us things that we don't know on our own. And it's just an amazing thing. Mm. And then the, the thing that grows out of that experience of of hearing God's whisper, hearing, hearing him in our thoughts, sharing thoughts. Thought rhyming is one of the ideas of neurotheology. We're thought rhyming with God. And the, one of the big results of this is, is that you come to know who you really are. You, your identity, which is your identity centers right behind your right eyebrow in your brain. And six times a second, it's, it's trying to tell you who you really are. And so this is what it's designed for. So when, you're, when your right hemisphere has been regulated and synchronized, you have a good, strong sense of who you are. And God is involved in that process. 
telling you who you are. He's, he's re reinforcing you, your true identity. And there's a lot of joy then that accompanies that. So your right, hem, your, uh, right prefrontal cortex is your identity center and your joy center. And it's the most, it's the most amazing part of the, of the brain because it continues to grow after you're a, a, a little kid. So your right hemisphere in, in your prefrontal cortex and mine is growing right now because we're together and we're talking, we're sharing ideas and there's new neural networks that are getting forged in our adult brains. Our brains are still growing in that part of our brain. And this is the part of our brain that, that lets us know who our true identity is. And it, it also, uh, brings joy and builds up joy capacity so that if you go through a hard time later today, you've had this joy experience with me that has built up joy capacity so that you have shock absorbers on your being that, and you're not, gonna, you're not gonna get thrown so easily by the difficult thing. And you learn how to endure hardship. So how do people who may have endured hardship like you're talking about, do so without the idea of a God? Well, uh, this is a very human experience. You know, God's genius is woven into human experience and wo woven into the human life because he made us. And so these things work for people that don't have faith in God in terms of maturing. Mm -hmm. You know, you little kids mature, right? This is a, this is a beautiful thing. It's a very human thing. But it, it's something that is by God's design. Even if you're not in a personal relationship with God, you're still benefiting from what God has made and the mm. way he's made things. So, so then when we add our, our connection to God into that human equation of, of life and the unfolding of life, it just takes the human experience to the next level of, oh, now it's not just me on my own. Uh, or us on our own, it's us and our creator interacting with one another. So it just enhances the good things of human life when you get God into the equation. If he's not in the equation, then you're missing out on something that you could have. Hmm. Interesting. And I, I feel like a lot of people just um, have, have decided if there's a God or not based on past experiences that may have been bad or good. Yeah, And we see this a lot of times with people running from the church and running from pastors because, you know, the pastor molested somebody or the pastor did this, the pastor did that. And that's the representative, like you talked about earlier, of God. And I wonder if those traumatic experience being representative of God, um, if they were moved, if there was way more open-mindedness to actually seeing the concept of general, general revelation, you know? I think so. Yeah, I think pain... The pain of life, the, even the pain of church life, the pains of church life have, you know, caused a lot of people to stumble, and it's very sad. And so, let's change the world. You know, you and me, Caleb. Let's, let's go. Let's go. You know, really embody God's presence and rep represent Him. You know, I like that word. We, we're representative, but let's represent Him because He's been misunderstood by the you know, problems in the lives and the communities of faith. And let's do a better job. Yeah. And then I would just tell people, you know, read about Jesus again. Go back to the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read about Jesus. Think about him. 
and see what God might do, you know, to move your heart, to help you overcome some of that misunderstanding and, um, and watch the Bible project videos and, uh, see if that'll help. Well, I'm really glad you said repurposing and, and talking these type of conversations that we're having right now need to happen more often across the dinner table or, you know, at the bar, just drinking a beer, whatever, whatever your thing is like, we just, we need to have actually have these conversations and not shy away. I feel like so many people do that. They, we talk about politics. We start talking about religion. Those are the two things we never talk about so far. I've talked about both. So it kind of works out. Um, and you have, you brought a really cool perspective to some of these things that I think so many people are questioning that the church isn't addressing. Yeah. So I really appreciate your time. Um, that's actually a pretty good wrap up. Anything okay. else that you want to say before we were done? Just that God really likes human beings. Uh, we're made in his likeness and image and we're designed Uh for him we're designed for a relationship with him and with people as well and so i just want to encourage people to get more relational relational with god get relational with people and let let's let's find the love because that's what we're made for that's what we thrive on is genuine love and genuine love is not selfish it's it's self-sacrificing in nature and so live a life of self-sacrificing love and You'll probably be led to Jesus. That's awesome. Well, again, Mr. Sullivan, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You have a great day. And this will probably publish in a couple of weeks. <laughs> All right, Caleb. All right, have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye.